What are we doing? Why are we doing it? How are we doing it? Who is doing anything and for whom? What is this? This is the conversation that Subhuti is having with the Buddha in the Diamond Sutra. We enter into the Diamond Sutra as the Buddha was completing morning alms rounds. He ate, he washed his feet, then he sat down among the monks. It's this ordinary activity. The sutra goes on to say, then the monk Subhuti, who was in the midst of the assembly, stood up, bared his right shoulder, kneeled on his right knee, clasped his hands together in reverence and addressed the Buddha. How exquisitely considerate you are, sir. You're always concerned about the welfare of your students and you're generous with your teaching. Sir, when sincere men and women seek enlightenment, what should they do? And how should they control their minds? The Buddha said, an excellent question, Subhuti. If sincere men and women seek enlightenment, it is essential for them to control their minds. Listen, and I will explain how. Subhuti said, please do, sir. We're all listening. The Buddha said, all bodhisattvas who sincerely seek the truth should control their minds by focusing on one thought only. When I attain enlightenment, I will liberate all sentient beings in every realm of the universe and allow them to pass into the eternal peace of nirvana And yet, when vast, uncountable, unthinkable myriads of beings have been liberated, in reality, no being has been liberated. Why? Because no one who is a true bodhisattva entertains such concepts as self and other. Thus, in reality, There is no self to attain enlightenment and no sentient beings to be liberated. So what are we doing? Why are we doing it? And who are we talking about? It's like that chant you hear at protests sometimes. What do we want? Enlightenment. When do we want it? Now. Now. (laughs) The assembly is seeking the truth, hoping to attain enlightenment. What is enlightenment? And why would we seek it? For many of us, it is to relieve suffering. The Buddha said, 
I teach suffering and the relief of suffering. So we come to the Buddha Dharma for the relief of suffering. The Buddha says that bodhisattvas should control their minds by focusing on one thought only. This is the how. But before we get to that one thought, what are bodhisattvas? Bodhisattva is a Sanskrit word. It means awakened being. Bodhisattvas do the work of Buddhas. They are dedicated to the universal awakening, to the enlightenment of everyone. And while they're fully able to attain nirvana, they vow not to do so, not until everyone does. We can practice with them, with bodhisattvas, in a literal way, calling on them for help and aid, like Kanzeon or Jizo Bodhisattva. Every time I've called on Kanzeon or Jizo Bodhisattva for aid, they have always responded in some way. Or we can practice with them as archetypes, psychological or spiritual models for our own inspiration. A reminder for what we ourselves are capable of. A reminder for how to be in service, how to act from wisdom and compassion. Okay, so this how. The Buddha said, all bodhisattvas who sincerely seek the truth should control their minds by focusing on one thought only. When I attain enlightenment, I will liberate all sentient beings in every realm of the universe and allow them to pass into the eternal peace of nirvana. And yet, and this is a big yet, when vast, uncountable, unthinkable myriads of beings have been liberated, in reality, no being has been liberated. Why? Because no one who is a true bodhisattva entertain such concepts as self and other. Thus, in reality, there is no self to attain enlightenment and no sentient beings to be liberated. No being has ever been liberated. There is no self to attain. There are no sentient beings to be liberated. 
How can this be? The first part of this thought entertains these concepts, doesn't it? When I attain enlightenment, I will liberate all sentient beings. This assumes that there are concepts. This assumes that there are bodhisattvas. And then there are liberated beings. Bodhisattvas, and then there are liberated beings. It also assumes a future. When I attain enlightenment sometime in the future, it assumes attainment. It also assumes a kind of generosity, a selflessness, a self that puts others first. a kind of conventional generosity. Generosity that can be functional, even inspiring. That's a generosity that can sometimes also get bound up in giver, receiver, and gift. Bound up in these concepts and these roles get stuck in them. It can become a transaction. Doesn't it seem like everything has become a transaction in the world? What is a world without transaction? For example, another example of a transaction, transactional generosity, an emperor donates money, builds a temple, and then asks, what merit do I get from that? We can get stuck there. Maybe we have a discomfort with receiving gifts, and we limit them or don't accept them or can't accept them gracefully, make it awkward. Or maybe we experience burnout as a caregiver. Or maybe we get sometimes fearful or stingy or petty. So it seems like this mind of enlightenment is important. There's something beyond the concepts of all this, beyond the concept of generosity, beyond the concept of enlightenment. The mind of enlightenment, this wish for awakening, is sometimes called bodhicitta. This is sometimes defined as the awakening mind. The mind of enlightenment. 
bodhisattvas cultivate bodhicitta. Bodhicitta is like bodhisattva fuel. I like Norman Fisher's definition of bodhicitta. A spontaneous wish to attain enlightenment, motivated by great compassion for all sentient beings, accompanied by a falling away of the attachment to the illusion of an inherently existing self. A spontaneous wish to attain enlightenment, motivated by great compassion for all sentient beings, accompanied by a falling away of the attachment to the illusion of an inherently existing self. So we have this intense desire to relieve suffering, the will to liberate all beings, but it's also permeated with the wisdom of emptiness. That's the two wings of wisdom and compassion, the two wings in flight. This is a powerful fuel for practice. We've been reading the Tanha Sutra. Tanha means thirst and craving and suffering, wanting, longing. There can also be a a more healthy kind of a longing or wanting. It's called chanda, a wholesome longing, a wish for the well-being of ourselves and others. Bodhicitta is like this. It's wanting peace, wanting the relief of suffering, I and all beings. That bodhicitta includes wisdom, Wisdom, one of the six paramitas or perfections, wisdom, also known as understanding, wisdom, prajna paramita. The other five are generosity, which the Diamond Sutra also touches on, doesn't it? Ethical conduct, patience, diligence, and meditation. We may open these up through the week, too. They're very supportive of our practice, and they are all embedded in each other. I like Norman Fisher uses, instead of diligence, he calls it joyful effort. Joyful effort. Let's bring that in too, shall we? So prajnaparamita. This is all in the first part of the one thought, this wish for awakening. But the yet, and yet, when vast, uncountable, unthinkable myriads of beings have been liberated, in reality, no being has been liberated. Why? because no one who is a true bodhisattva 
entertain such concepts as self and other. Thus, in reality, there is no self to attain enlightenment and no sentient beings to be liberated. It's almost like this teaching simultaneously undercuts and underlines its own teaching. There's no ground here. There's nowhere to grasp, is there? It's ungraspable. Just like everything. And yet, here we are in a world of concepts, in a conceptual reality. A so-called bodhisattva knows there's no such thing as a bodhisattva. A bodhisattva relies on prajnaparamita. A bodhisattva understands. A bodhisattva sees through concepts. A bodhisattva doesn't entertain concepts. If a bodhisattva does all that, we should probably know about it too, if we want to be bodhisattvas, right? So what even are concepts? When we're talking about concepts and letting go concepts, cutting through the diamond that cuts through delusion, What even are concepts? Part of what we can call conceptual reality, apparent reality, conventional reality. The reality that we walk out of a Zen retreat and I don't know, it used to be called water cooler conversation, right? Uh, you know, how was the football game and who's um, winning the election or stuff like that, right? Or even I am. But they're not the whole truth. But they can be experienced. Concepts. This is a beautiful teaching that the Diamond Sutra delivers to us. There's no such thing as a frog. They're only called frogs. That's why we call it a frog. They can be experienced. Another example Hogan Roshi was using was the sky. There's no such thing. How would you wrap your arms around it? Where is the actual beginning and end of it?
and yet we experience it. Another example might be the body. This is what we've been practicing with the last few days. When we really look, what is it? When we really feel into the body, feeling the body with the body, what is that experience? Without our concept, what does the foot actually feel like? It's not the shape that we've been taught that it is or that we could see in a, in a book. It's very different from that, isn't it? Our direct experience of the foot. Can we truly differentiate the sensation of pressure on the cushion or the floor? Where does the foot end and the cushion begin? It gets blurry. It goes beyond our attempts to define it. And yet we experience it. So I'd like to offer an exercise in how we see concepts of practice. So for a moment, do please look around the Zendo. Look around and see what you see. Try to gather every single detail that you can. Really see the Zendo. Take it all in as best you can in as much detail as possible, the colors, the shapes, the lights, the shadows, everything. And now close your eyes. Keep your eyes closed and recreate exactly the Zendo. Recreate every detail you saw. Make it as clear and real and detailed as you can. The Zendo. And when you've got it really clear, 
go ahead and open your eyes. What's missing? What did you forget? This is like our concepts. Our concept of the Zendo is missing so much, so much life. We get in trouble when we mistake our concepts for reality. And we do this all the time. when we relate to things like this as if it's the whole truth, when we relate to people like this as if that's the whole truth, as if we could ever know anyone. Another way you can compare your idea of reality to reality, this is an exercise from someone named Ellen Langer. She says to, this, she does this in groups sometimes, encourages people to go up to the dry erase board, try to draw a dollar bill from memory. It's hilarious, ridiculous. Our concepts that we rely on, that we act as if are the truth, are as ridiculous as our attempts at drawing a dollar bill from memory. Ellen Langer's definition of mindfulness, she's a, she's a psychologist, a scientist, and uh, is sometimes called the mother of mindfulness. She explores and researches mindfulness, but she has come at it not through the Buddha Dharma. Her definition of mindfulness is the process of actively noticing new things. The process of actively noticing new things. Isn't that beautiful? Seeing the continuous flow. Seeing the continuous flow is so different from our concepts that are frozen, frozen like our childlike drawings of reality. One of my art teachers said, uh, no lollipop trees. <laughs> lollipop trees. I mean, we can sometimes even relate to real trees in that way, when we say, yeah, yeah, that's a tree. It's when we're not paying attention, when we're not really looking at what's in front of us, not really seeing a tree, that there is in fact no such thing as a tree. is in no way separate from the universe. 
when we really pay attention, when we really pay careful, detailed attention. And that doesn't have to be a tight, sweaty kind of attention. (laughs) Furrowed brow kind of trembling, clenched fist attention. It can be a gentle, kind attention, an appreciative and curious attention. That's the gift of attention. When we pay attention like that, we can see reality, sometimes called suchness. Free from concepts. The suchness of the sendo this right here. D.T. Suzuki said that Zen insists on handling the thing itself and not some empty abstraction. Zen insists on handling the thing itself and not some empty abstraction. Everything is and can only be itself. When we see this, how everything is alive, everything is participating in the flow. And we can get stuck in our ideas, in our two-dimensional worlds, in our lollipop tree forest. This is just a mistake. It's just a misapprehension. I mean, this is the hilarious, in a way, definition of samsara. It's just been a big misunderstanding. And it can be fatal, the basis for war, defending, I, me, mine, defending territory, fearful of losing identity. So I take heart from the Prajnaparamita Sutra, the part that says, with nothing to attain, a bodhisattva relies on Prajnaparamita. Thus the mind is without hindrance. Without hindrance, there is no fear. I just hope to be lucky enough to spend my life discerning the meaning of that. 
There's another translation of that part that I really like. Therefore, therefore, O Shariputra, it is because of his non-attainmentness that a bodhisattva, through having relied on the perfection of wisdom, dwells without thought coverings. In the absence of thought coverings, he has not been made to tremble. He has overcome what can upset. Maybe thought coverings is another way to say concepts or empty abstractions. Byron Katie points beneath this when she says it's who we all are without a story. She also talks about this regarding generosity. She asks, she says, how attached you are to a story is how much you hold back. How attached you are to a story is how much you hold back. The Prajnaparamita Sutra is also about relieving suffering by taking apart our concepts. Avalokiteshvara, when deeply practicing Prajnaparamita, clearly saw that all five aggregates are empty and thus relieved all suffering. This is relevant to our practice, our direct practice on the cushion. This is what we're doing. Our practice to stabilize the mind, to focus on the body, to focus on the breath, the very foundations of mindfulness, and to see into what is underneath these thought coverings. The five aggregates that they're made from, form, sensations, perceptions, formations, and consciousness. We just start by looking deeply into what we think is real and question it, starting with the body, the form of the body, the forms of what we perceive. We can see that it's not what we thought it was at all. Our perceptions what we cognize and recognize, if we've been connected with form, maybe liking or disliking, our perceptions take on the thought covering, like a mirage. A mirage is just the literal bending of light that tricks our eyes and our mind into thinking that there's water when there isn't. There's just two different temperatures of air. But we can believe that there's water. Or another perception is when we look at a photograph, it's just maybe some colors on a piece of paper or pixels on a screen. And we say, oh, that's me. And I like that picture and I don't like it. That's a very unflattering picture, right? We can <laughs> We believe it. We believe our opinions and views about what is pleasant or unpleasant, and yet those are totally arbitrary. 
People disagree all the time about what's beautiful or what's ugly. Just look at architecture. So all these things come apart when we really look. And this includes the perception of I am. This is called a craving verbalization, according to the Tana Sutra. I am. I am here. I am like this. I am bad. I am good. I might be. These are the internal craving verbalizations. And the external, I'm like this because of that. I'm bad because of that. I'm good because of that. We can take this apart, this I am, just by looking at it. What are its basic components? When did it arise? What is it made of? How did that happen? We get to stop and really look at this process that we usually don't even notice and just take to be true or real. This process can reveal the emptiness of all of our fixed views, all of our concepts. It can be a little scary because we're not permanent. But we are boundless. It's part of this flow of life, this dynamic aliveness. And in that is the freedom to really be in the zendo. There's no such thing as a zendo. It's only called a zendo. That's why we call it a zendo. There's nothing to attain. It's all right here. Where else? When else could it be? So let's keep going with joyful effort, with patience, with generosity, with wisdom, with compassion. Thank you.